0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Technology Report sponsored by General Motors Defense. I'm your host, Vago Moradian. and it is my honor today to welcome United States Navy Rear Admiral Lauren Selby, the Director of the Office of Naval Research, a distinguished submariner who's also served as Chief Engineer of the Navy, one of the coolest titles ever, uh, and someone who now has one of the coolest jobs in the Navy Department. Admiral Selby, welcome aboard, and th- thanks very much for making time for us.
1: Yeah, thanks, Vago. It's great to be with you today.
0: Uh, An absolute uh, pleasure. And before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, our weekly cyber report and cyber coverage overall is sponsored by Northrop Grumman and Finn Contieri Marinette Marine sponsors uh, our naval coverage and uh, speaking of naval coverage. Uh, our coverage at the Navy League's recent Sea Airspace Conference in Show was sponsored both by Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine. Uh, sir, uh, you came to the job about a, about a year ago. Again, one of the coolest jobs uh, around. Uh, it is a time of great change. You're deeply involved, obviously, in helping the service craft its unmanned strategy. Uh, you helped uh, orchestrate and architect, uh, if I can use that word awkwardly, uh, the battle fleet uh, problem. Uh, first, let's start with your broad priorities in ONR. What are you trying to achieve in your tenure.
1: Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for that question.
0: So I've been in a job. It's, uh,
1: it's been 15 months now, which is amazing. The time just flies. But I came in uh, last summer and I started asking the team, I said, all right, so what, what are we known for? What do we want to be known for? And everybody said, well, it, we're the future of naval power. And that comes right out of Public Law 588, which was signed uh, by President Truman back in 1946. And in fact, this is our 75th anniversary year. We're celebrating that, uh, that now, in fact. Uh, but I asked folks about that. What does that mean, future naval power? And they said, well, it's about advancing technologies, trying to look 5, 10, 15, or more years into the future about what technologies are coming and then developing them to put them on ships. And I, I said, well, that's, that's interesting. I like that. But I want to try to tweak that a little bit. So I said, I think what we are about in the Office of Naval Research and the Naval Research Enterprise is about reimagining naval power. And what that means to me is that's starting from basically a blank canvas and then starting to paint on that canvas, being informed by the known problems that we have today, the projected problems that are coming down the pike tomorrow. And then what we know about technology today, and then what our best scientists think technologies are coming down the pike tomorrow. And then bringing those all together to try to come up with a vision of what that future Navy could be and really probably should be. And then really more importantly, mapping a course to get us from here to there. So that's what I've been doing. I've been talking about reimagining naval power, trying to get people excited about that concept and trying to really, you know, trying to shed ourselves of some of the, um, The things we've traditionally done just because we've always done them and really looking to take advantage of the the technology that we all know in our personal lives, professional lives, is still racing at us at breakneck speed. And I think all of us are kind of feeling a little uncomfortable knowing that it's coming so fast and that some parts of our life, uh, we're adapting it pretty well, which is kind of the personal side of life. Think about your iPhone and your iPad or whatever device you use. That's all pretty well adapting that technology. But when it comes to our work lives, whether you're in the government or not, I don't think we're going as fast as we could be and, and definitely should be. So I think part of my job is to help the Navy and Marine Corps team figure out ways to do that, to go faster, adapt those technologies. And again, to start from that blank canvas to map out that new future and then try to get us on a trajectory that will, will get us there faster rather than later.
0: Let me pull on that a little bit, because uh, anybody who knows you knows not only are you a first uh, rank um, engineer, but you're also regarded as somebody who is a technologist and a scientist at heart. So you have a tendency of being able not only to see the problem uh, without buttering your toast too much, sir, uh, but also... (laughs) understanding that you also have to have the cultural changes that drive this, right? I mean, ultimately it doesn't matter if you've got a great innovation, if for a whole bunch of cultural reasons, you're not adopting it. And for all the innovative nature of the United States Navy, it can be pretty high bound in terms of what it is it does because it does it that way. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how you are driving speed across the enterprise, especially on how quickly you can transition great and potentially promising ideas or even adapt that which already exists to deliver real world capability, but uh, but ultimately do it a lot faster than you're doing it now.
1: Yeah, so I think one of the ways I'm trying to do this, I'm really, I'm really um, pushing back at the idea of requirements. Okay, I think the requirements mindset is still probably the appropriate mindset for a for a platform, a big complex ship, submarine, aircraft carrier, high end fighter. You still need requirements. You still need to take the time, the rigor, the engineering to really the discipline to get that right. But when it comes to the smaller, whether it's an autonomous system or a sensor or a software driven capability that goes on a platform, I think it's a different mindset. And I think requirements by definition kind of constrain us. And so I think we need to kind of throw out the requirements mindset for things other than the highly complex, very expensive platforms and think more in terms of defining the problem. This means you've got to roll up your sleeves, get with the operators, get with the scientists, the engineers, even the folks in the building, the OPNAF folks that they're gonna provide the money, get together, define the problem, get it really crisply refined, and then present that to uh, the ecosystem to look for solutions. And to your point, a lot of those solutions already exist. And a lot of those are not in the government, they're in the commercial sector. In fact, if you look at the the evolution of the last 75 years since ONR was established, for the first true 25 to maybe 35, 40 years of, of our time, the government still was kind of leading uh, in the in innovation space. That has flipped. That flipped somewhere in the 80s, maybe 90s, where now that innovation is really being driven by a lot of money that's being put in by capital, venture capitalists, and others uh, in places like Silicon Valley, Austin, Boston, those kind of places. So we have to change our mindset, think about problems, vice requirements, and think about trying to adapt existing technologies, existing things are on the shelf that, again, are mostly cots based commercial off-the-shelf systems that we can take with very minor adaptations and put them into use. That is a different mindset. And I don't know that we today have an organization that's really got that right yet. And I think that's where we need to go. So I'm really pushing hard on that to try to figure out a model that we can develop to prove to leadership that there's a different way of doing business that is much faster. And again, it takes advantage of those small businesses, the VC that's out there across this country, and uses that to solve military problems. In my case, naval relevant problems.
0: Um, how, so that it's it's interesting you say that um, uh, because uh, there is this notion that the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, now Heidi Hsu, uh, Dr. Shu is in there to be the Chief Technology Officer. That's what Mike Griffin was, uh, Dr. Griffin was trying to do uh, as well. So there is a push pull among uh, your organization in the Air Force, Army, uh, and of course, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, Marine Corps in its, in its own way as well. Ultimately, our model though, is, uh, you know, General Motors Defense sponsors uh, this uh, program. I mean, it's astonishing how many engineers, for example, the company has, how cutting edge it is in many of the fields that it works in. And so for them, it you know, developing products for DoD was an interesting adjacency. And of course, they do things with advanced battery and electrics and uh, even fuel cell technology that you have, right, which in various ways can strap, scratch navy itches. But we have a tendency... Of sort of looking at these commercial technologies, then wanting to partner with sort of a heritage defense industry, and then sort of go through a conventional acquisition process. How do we need to think differently about how it is we do that? Because if Apple has the right thing you need, okay, it may need a certain degree of adaptation. I'm, I'm just using this generally, but right. I mean, an iPad is actually remarkably robust, uh, resilient, uh, reliable. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that that's a solution for anything, but you know, ultimately, how do you make this transition where you're grabbing and adapting what you need at the speed you need it, as opposed to saying, oh, okay, well, that's a really great, you know, Selby Marady, and I've got a great idea. Now we've got to get it into, you know, Heritage Contractor X and then go through a competition and five other companies compete against it and then make a down select, and, and then 10 years from now you field something you don't need anymore.
1: Yeah. And so I think it's a couple of things. One is that there are some existing authorities out there, uh, you know, about OTAs, other transaction authorities. That's one way. We've got the small business innovative research area, SIBRs, where if you've got people in that SIBR process already, you can easily go from, you know, phase one, two to three to actually start fielding KIT. So those are some ways you lever. But I but I do think there's a, there's a little difference here because... If you think about uh, the idea of going to somebody who's already got a solution, okay, that can, let's just say you've got a, a sensor, we'll just make it very generic. There's a sensor, mm-hmm. it's on an autonomous system, and there's a company, a, a private company who has this, and maybe they came up through a SIVR process, so we can easily get to them and we can actually scale that very quickly. So I want to now take that and I want to develop a new model. And I think, I think it could be a COCO model, contractor-owned, contractor Tractor operated. I don't necessarily think government needs to own uh, or even operate that kind of thing. As long as I can tell that company put that sensor where I tell you, and when you've got it providing data to me, uh, I will pay you for that. The rest of the time, uh, you know, you can do whatever you want to do with that thing. But for, for the time it's it's on station, it provides data to to the, in this case the U.S. Navy or Marine Corps. Um, I think that's a totally different model. Now, what the acquisition world will traditionally want to do is actually fully define this. And I, I mean, I came out, I've been doing that for 14 years, so I, I understand this and I understand why, but we want to fully define it, write the ship spec, get the requirement right, go then put it through a full acquisition stroke, DOD 5000, and that, that will take many, many years. Uh, they will also want to provide a logistics tail, sustainment, uh, you can figure out what the sustainment costs will be, map it all out. The model I'm suggesting is, is really totally different, especially for these autonomous things. I don't want to have a sustainment or a, or a logistics tail. I want to basically operate it for as long as I can operate it. And then when I'm done, the contractor, I, they can recycle it. They can refurb it and let someone else use it. I don't really care. I just want it to do my mission for when I'm paying it to do my mission. The rest of the time it can do other things. That is a totally different mindset than, than I think we've got today in the DOD. That's I think where we need to go, not for everything. Again, platforms, big 1000000000 dollar things, I think the acquisition system arguably is about right, okay? I mean, there's obviously things we can do to improve it. But for the most part, we kind of get those things pretty much right. It's different uh, when it comes to these smaller, faster things. Uh, I've got a, a, you know, a little initiative that I call the small, fast, and many. So smaller things, attributable kind of things, um, where you want to buy many of them that don't go fast, but can be adapted fast. That's the fast piece. That is a different model. And I think it can be scratched with a lot of commercial solutions, not in every case, but in a lot of cases. And that's where I think we really need to explore. And for big, uh, big DOD to accept this, someone needs to prove it. So we've got to go out and prove this so others can look at it and go, oh, I see how that works. And maybe it's not perfect, but I can see if you change this, you can actually make this do, you know, do what we want it to do. That's what we have to, have to go do and go prove.
0: Um, uh, let me, um, let me j- just very briefly, uh, this, this was not a question, but it hopped to mind. now. I remember, uh, at, uh, the DSCI show, uh, in 2019, the last time we convened in person that, uh, show, uh, is going to be th- uh, this year in person as opposed to remotely as it was last year because of the pandemic. And I ran into two Royal Australian air force, uh, group captains and, and, and they had a brilliant, uh, there, they were the heads of project Jericho and th- their point was that in future conflict advantage you know advantage will be measured actually in seconds right like military advantage won't be measured in decades or years as we've come to be uh, come to see it but that actually advantage will flip back and forth very quickly and the most the the, the power that's likely to prevail is the one that can adapt faster uh, in each one of these cycles do you subscribe to that notion
1: I- absolutely and not only can they adapt faster they can make decisions that are richer and faster than the adversary. Not always right, but mostly right, more right than they are. So I totally agree with that.
0: Um, When you look at The span of technologies, right? I mean, they have a tendency of all being lumped together: um, hypersonics, connectivity, microelectronics, uh, autonomy. You know, give me a side of AI and machine learning. With that, now is the big joke, uh, as as you know. What are what are the areas? Whether it's materials, nano. I mean, what are the things that you think are most exciting and are going to be the most breakthrough from from your standpoint? Places where you think the juice will be most worth most worth the squeeze?
1: Yeah. So there, there's a, so all these areas you, you just mentioned are clearly. Uh, you know, important areas. But I think there's some other areas that don't get mentioned as much. Biotechnology. This is an area where I think we have really uh, not put enough investment in, uh, in, in total, across probably the entire government. Uh, that's starting to change. Uh, as you may know, China has come out and said they want to lead the world in biotech. Of course, they've said that in AI and just about everything else. Uh, but they're, they're putting a lot of money into it. I think biotechnology has... has uh, a potential to transform a lot of parts of our operations, including logistics, uh, even operations. There are some really exciting projects that we're starting to see crop up in the, in the basic basic research arena. Uh, things like bacteria that can actually consume seawater and turn it into a, a combustible type fuel. Right. Um, things like bioprocesses that can actually make materials that are as hard as, as metal. Those processes I think are gonna be fundamental to how we support our systems in the future. So I think that's a huge growth area. Quantum, quantum clearly. And when people talk about quantum, most people jump right to quantum computing. And I think quantum computing is important, but there are other parts of our government that are spending a lot of money in that area. And I will very happily be a fast follower when it comes to quantum computing. But when it comes to things like quantum sensing, quantum timing, quantum communications and quantum networking, those are areas where I think we should invest. So so there's some projects that we're, we're exploring in those different areas to see what's possible in those arenas. Um, obviously, AI, you mentioned that um, the whole autonomous system arena is, I think, still a just a, we're on the, just the beginning of the upward exponential curve of what those systems can do. So there's a lot of exciting areas out there. A lot of people ask me, what's the one area? There's no one area. That's the, that's the thing. first thing I'll tell you. Um, there are many areas, and, and that's, in fact, why, uh, as, the, as the owner of this, the Navy's science and technology budget, a large part of that budget is, is the, in budget parlance, it's the 6.1. It's the basic right. research it's the money we pay in grants to colleges and universities across this country, as well as to some con- to uh, some colleges in other parts of the world, to look for basic scientific principles, technologies that they think could be the next game changer. And you can't put all your bets in one area. You've got to spread that around, or you're gonna you're gonna miss something. So that's that's a fundamental. Um, the way we try to do business is to make sure we, we're not putting all our bets in one thing because that would be you, you would invariably bet wrong and then you'd have
0: nothing. Um, let me, uh, and I should give a shout out to Dr. Heather uh, Willauer, uh, who is uh, at uh, Naval Research Lab, part of uh, your your team, who is working to yeah. try to convert seawater uh, into a combustible fuel, and I, I think she's a national uh, treasure. Um, a word from our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and l 3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain uh, command and control. I want to just ask uh, briefly... Um, are you worried? Are there any particular areas you worry about when you look at um, Chinese focus and drive? You know, you mentioned precision uh, navigation and timing. Obviously, the Chinese have put a quantum satellite up. Um, I, we're obviously not privy to what we are doing in this field, and I know that we have always been PNT leaders, uh, guy, going back all the way to Myron uh, Miranian and and those guys yeah. who, did, who did it in the '60s. Uh, but um, are are you satisfied or are you concerned? In, you know how how would you place where we are vis-a-vis where our adversaries are? Let me put it Yeah, that way.
1: without really getting into specifics, I think the area that of concern I have about a, a country that the size of China is the scale in terms of both dollars as well as in in terms of breadth that they are investing in um, in technologies. Uh, all over the planet, by the way. It's not just in China. And that is concerning to me. Uh, I think we're, we've kind of woken up and we're starting to realize we've got to kind of compete on that arena. That's why I had this organization called ONR Global, Office of Naval Research Global, which has also been around right. since the beginning of ONR, headquartered in London. We have science directors at kind of key embassies or consulates around the, around the globe that are there to do a couple things. One is to kind of keep tabs on what's going on in that part of the, you know, that neck of the woods, as it were. B, to keep tabs on what others are doing, like maybe a China. Um, and C, to convince those host nations as well as the nations in that vicinity that the U.S. really should be your partner of choice and not a China or Russia or whoever else may come to the table. Because we will right. do things like honor your intellectual property. Uh, where others may not. We will do things like collaborate with you, actually even share with you, bring your scientists into our laboratories for for visits. Those things we will do that others typically will not. And so that's what I'm concerned about is China is really trying to compete on a global scale. And uh, again, the, the scale of dollars and, and the breadth of which they're doing that Is concerning, Uh, so that's an area where I think we're trying to counter that as best we can. Uh, But that's that's probably one of my biggest concerns. And without getting into specific technology
0: areas, right? Um, How how, um, you know, one of the things is that there are so many organizations that are developing so much technology. And anytime you say you know innovation is the name of the game, you you get lots of hands working the problem, which is potentially very good. The downside of that is, time and again over my career, I've talked to uh, veteran scientists. Scientists or engineers who say, "Oh yeah, you know, we did that in 1978, but nobody's really used it." And and you find that there is a current research program that's trying to reinvent that particular r- r- wheel. How would you rate where we stand on visibility? Right. Uh, I mean, is there somebody in the army who's, you know, found a solution to a problem he doesn't have, but you have a big solution? You have a big problem that that could fix.
1: Right. right. Do we
0: have the right mechanisms in place? And what's the role of um the research and engineering at DOD to maybe help gatekeep this function because i i find this all the time where i end up becoming a little bit of a cross pollinator among these communities of sort of you know saying like hey you know so and so is working on that and they go oh right, wow right. you know yeah. which, which i don't yeah, think you're the, you're i don't like think i should be yeah I, well right. i it should, you should you're in deep trouble if you're relying <laughs> on me to do it but you know how how do we need to think about that
1: yeah no i i no, i get it um i would say that uh, We have we have pretty good connectivity with those services, but I obviously can do better. So, a couple things: we have a a quarterly lab commander sync. So, I get together with uh, the Air Force, the Army, and now the Coast Guard lab commanders, and we we basically uh, we have a set agenda where there's some topic areas we want to share with one another to say here we're working on this areas. Then we'll have kind of a just a just commanders only discussion about, hey, what are we thinking about? What are we focused on? What are we concerned about? So we share those things. Uh, OSC r also does a pretty good job of bringing uh, at, at the higher level. So this is at like the DASNRD T&E level for the Navy, uh, leaders together to talk about common concerns, common focus areas. Um, who's working on this? Who's working on that? And if you're both working on the same thing, why? And sometimes, you know, a lot of times like aircraft stuff, Air Force may have a lead in certain aspects of airframe development, but there's certain things that are naval, you know, have naval um, identities so that we have to that we have to do. Landing gear for an aircraft carrier is different than landing gear for a you know a fixed runway. So we've got to work certain aspects that the corrosion issues on a carrier deck are different than they are in the desert. So those are things that we, you know, if there is overlap, that sometimes it's because, hey, that's a naval issue that we've got to take care of but we do we do try to share as best we can i i guarantee you that could be improved uh as a lot, as anything else when it comes to communication that's almost always the linchpin of you know why didn't that work well because i didn't talk to whoever we try to we try to do that with these black matter sinks
0: um, walk us through the battle fleet uh, problem. This, this yeah. is an idea sure. uh, that that harkens right back to the interwar years, where uh, the battle force experimented, worked really closely with the Naval War College. Um, I do think that um, I, I always like to caution people. You know, we get all the wars wrong, which was utterly baloney. The Naval War College with the exception of the kamikaze, gamed out what World War II would look like with astonishing clarity, uh, despite the setback that happened at at Pearl Harbor. And that's because a lot of people did a lot of very, very hard work and the senior leadership was involved. And there was a methodical nature to the way that the Navy approached it. You're trying to bring that back Talk to us about this battle. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, so, so yeah, yeah, again, I'm, a big,
1: I'm a big reader of history and Learning War is, is one of my favorite books and that whole discussion about the interwar periods between World War I and Two, and how we how we lost our way and then found our way with a learning culture. And so um, when I came into the job, so I, I took over on the 29th of May, 2020. I think that was a Friday and, uh, you know, celebrated over the weekend. I came to work on Monday morning. Monday afternoon, I put in a call with a good friend of mine, Admiral uh, Rob Goucher, who was at the time working on the PAC fleet staff for Admiral Long Aquilino. And I, we had a, it was a topic, We it was a different topic we were talking about initially, but then I said to him, because I've been thinking about this for a while, I said, Rob, I want to run an unmanned, I called it at the time, an unmanned battle problem. He said, what, what is that? I said, well, I said, I think we ought to go come up with a, uh, you know, come up with a uh, operational relevant scenario, um, try to go see who could bring their autonomous systems to bear. And I want to do this in your area of responsibility. And I want to do it sometime early next year. Well, he, <laughs> he said, Oh, that's an awesome idea. I love that. So we, we were riffing back and forth about, you know, what it could look like. Well, he went <laughs> gets right up to see his boss and, i mean the four-star coach loved it next thing i know you know we've got the green light get it going and then the animal is trying to bring the date left so we i put my own our global experimentation team together which uh which does a lot of the experiments for the navy and we put together the plan and uh i think we brought in 20 i think it's 28 29 autonomous systems um and we did this thing in southern california in, in april and it was it was awesome it was incredibly exciting We teamed up some of these systems with manned platforms. We brought the DDG-1001 out. We had some DDG-51s out there. We had a submarine. We had a target barge. I mean, it was phenomenal. And so, uh, you know, we learned a lot, but we also proved that those systems, uh, that the operators got to to understand how they operated, gained some trust with operating with autonomous systems, extended the reach for their ability to have situational awareness over the horizon, were able to provide some degree of targeting, It was incredibly exciting. So what I want to do is I want to, the Navy traditionally has done these experiments as kind of somewhat one-offs and they're, and they're episodic, right? They're like every year, every other, RIMPAC, every other year. And they're they're great events, but we need to have more of an engine of these experimentation where you go experiment in the field with sailors and Marines. You learn, you take down notes, things work and didn't work. You take it back in the laboratory, you Grind off the rough edges. You then go back again as soon as you're ready, maybe in a smaller scale exercise, because you want to now just proof out something that had some rough edges the last time you used it. And then if it works great, you you take it back and you maybe then maybe then it becomes something you go buy in in hundreds or thousands or whatever the number would be. We need to have that more of a continuous engine, not just these one-off events. So I'm trying to really get that get that culture established and get that engine moving because I think it's really cr- critically important, especially if you're trying to attract small businesses and, and others to come play, you've got to provide them a venue to demonstrate their, their abilities.
0: And, and so you're satisfied with where you ended up after this one?
1: I am, but I'm, but I'm now kind of thinking about, all right, how do I, what's next? How much quicker can I get there? And how do I make this, this uh, sustainable and, and make it part of my, you know, my longer term budgeting process. So that, that's the challenge. Like, like anything else uh, you got up, you got a pond for things. Yeah, I mean, here's a story. For he coming the job last summer, right? And by the time he came the job, uh, POM Twenty Two was pretty much, you know, in the oven, as it were. So they're like, oh, i don't know. congratulations. You're the new uh, new guy. Uh, you can actually start influencing things in POM Twenty Three. I'm like. <laughs> I'm 23. But I mean, I'll be—I'll probably be retired at 23. What are you talking about? <laughs> what, are you, what
0: are you talking about? Wait so like, a minute! No. Wait a minute! Don't rush your—don't rush yourself out
1: the door. <laughs> for God's sake! <laughs> Whatever. But I mean, I'm like—I'm not waiting till 23. So you know, so right. we we're able to do some things. But that—that's—that's that's the mentality. We, so this is part of the frustration that I have. So reimaginable power—I love it. I love everything's it, excited about it. But then you go try to do it, and you're like, "Oh, Emil, that's—you uh, gotta wait till 23."
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, thanks, what? guys. Yeah. <laughs> um. um you, you talked about the culture piece of this, right? Um. I think yeah. that. Uh. You know. I mean. Let us use your uh uh community, former community, I should say, right? Because you're you're in a you're in a you know blue and gold job, if you, if you would now. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. As a as a submariner. Um. Very innovative community, but also right, there are r- rules written in blood which you uh don't mess with. But then technologically. I know Admiral Richardson, when he went to Naval Reactors, tried to innovate there, and, and it was a little dicey, right? I mean, people looked at him as a bit of a heretic uh, for, for what he wanted to do. Um, and yet, a lot of this is is culture. I was just on uh, the right. phone
1: with him like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> uh,
0: right. <laughs> a, a lot of this is culture, and, and there could be good reasons why we still use lead-acid batteries uh, that are right out of World War II submarines, uh, with the exception of circulating fans, right? That's the big innovation we made. But, you know, there may be other ways to provide that kind of auxiliary power than these giant lead acid cells that have all the same problems that lead acid cells had 70 (laughs) years ago. Right. 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 So how do we get to the mental change piece of it and really relooking some of the rules we have about whether they may, you know, I remember this debate about X planes. You know, it's like, well, we couldn't have X planes. You know, we couldn't do drive by wire on submarines. Well, guess what? We now do drive-by-wire by submarines, we now have photonics masks that are not, right. they don't have through-hull yeah. penetration, right? I mean, yeah. we yeah. do these things. Yeah. So how do we, what do we have to bear in mind, um, right? Because it's one thing to experiment. It's another thing entirely to go, gee, Lauren, great job for doing that, but not in my Navy, yeah. right? So how do we get to that part of that?
1: Yeah. So, so, um, you know, Steve Blank, Steve Blank. I do. Uh, Steve, I do. Steve joined us lead, for one of
0: our strategy conversations. Yeah, so Startup
1: fame. So Steve and I have become friends, and I, I've uh, visited with Steve, and we occasionally, when I'm in a you know a place where I feel kind of uh, beat down by the bureaucracy, I'll pick up pick up a I text Steve and say, "I need a pep talk." <laughs> we get talking about innovation and craziness. One of the, one of the things Steve says is that. Organizations that get into an execution mode, okay, the turning the crank, making the donuts, you know, whatever you're doing. Those organizations, it's very hard for them to also have the ability to innovate within those lifelines. So you oftentimes have to kind of outside the lifelines establish an entity that can do this innovation. Have the innovation engine going, and then the challenge, of course, is how do you now move that from the innovation engine into the, you know, into the execution agent that's cranking out the donuts? That's that's the value of death. That's kind of what that describes. I right. think, um, you know, that's what that's kind of why you have an O and R. That's why you have an S and organization, you know, doing the things we do. I think structurally, there's some things we probably need to change to to get after the to perfect this. But for the most part we're trying to actually provide these kind of outside the box orthogonal things for people to think about. Um, The challenge then is, okay, how do you then get a champion to take it and put it into the, uh, into the innovation ecosystem, I'm sorry, the acquisition ecosystem. That's where I think we're trying to come up with creative ways to do that uh, at at very senior levels within the Navy and Marine
0: Corps. Do, Do you need a chief technology officer?
1: Well, that, that's an interesting question. I, I would argue that that's kind of me. I, I think that's right. kind of what I do. You know, as a C, as a chief enable research, I think I'm also the CTO. Um, so I don't know. You, you started this whole discussion talking about culture, and one of the things I will tell you is that culture is is really driven by incentives, um, which come out of you know behaviors that, that are really established because of the way organizations are structured. So to really change culture, you kind of have to go back to the structure. and You got to change structure. Now, that's, that's challenging for a large organization uh, like, like the Navy or Marine Corps. But, I, but I, my gut tells me that's where you kind of have to start. That conversation is ongoing. I don't know where it's going to fully go. In the interim, I'm going to do my best to continue to come up with kind of outside the box ideas and thinking and find ways to inject those into the right in the acquisition pipeline to get those on right. the platforms. But I think a lot of it, though, is also trying to think about these small, fast, and many things that you can kind of do outside the ecosystem of the existing you know, acquisition system that's that's turning away in places like NAVC, NAVA, or War. And I think right. you, you can do that. As long as you connect to the fleet, have a fleet operator that says, I really need that, you can then go proof it and then scale that up and provide in numbers to the fleet.
0: So, you know, you're, you're talking about small, man, unmanned, right? I mean, A, there's another cultural issue associated with that, right? I mean, the confluence of manned and unmanned. Right. But then the other challenge you have, uh, and I remember Frank Kendall, when he was acquisition technology and logistics undersecretary, would say the same thing. Like, a lot of small is good. The question is how I get it there, right? So you tell me how easily I can get it to the other side of the Pacific where I need it, because generally, you know, range means bigger rather than smaller, right? right. So how do you respond to both of those?
1: Well, so I think I think you gotta be creative. I think you've got to be creative. So you're right, the range is gonna be limited when it's a smaller thing. You just cannot pack as much energy into a small autonomous system that, than you could a large autonomous system. And even large ones, as you know, have some limitations on range and reliability and things like that that we're still trying to work on. But when it comes to smaller things, which I think if you could scale those up into numbers like hundreds or thousands, uh, You've got to be creative about how you get that in there. There are, there are means of doing that. And again, I'm not going to, you know, reveal anything here, but um, you know, just think creatively about how you might take a small right. sy- system, you know, even a quad copper size thing. How would you get that close in some way that uh, maybe someone wouldn't know there's, there's ways you can do that kind of thing. That's what we have to be thinking about.
0: And and the man unmanned layer.
1: I think that there's a, I think there's tension. Um, uh, clearly um you know, first of all, when first the unmanned systems first came out, you know, people used to say, oh, it's going to reduce the manning. Well, the, you know, <laughs> the joke was that we actually had more people operating kind of unmanned systems initially than you had when it would be a comparable manned system. That's clearly kind of the initial, you know, overcorrection, as it were, when you bring new things into into. Uh, into a community. That's probably natural. Over time, that will, that has, and it will continue to tail off. And I think, in fact, where we need to be is where maybe a single human is operating tens, if not hundreds of autonomous things, not not the other way around. And so that that balance is going to shift naturally over time. And some of that has to do with trust. We have to develop trust between the human and the autonomous system, Um, just like you have to have trust between a human and an an AI algorithm that's running wherever it's running. That trust is important. And that is only going to be built by operating these systems, getting them, getting them wet, getting in the air. And so the more you can do that uh, with any autonomous system, the better, and that will start to build that trust. And as you build that trust, I think you'll start seeing uh, more acceptance of these systems and, uh, and more of a pull. I think you got a pull now. Uh, I think it's a lot from a lot of the younger, younger folks who, who kind of really, think it's cool and they want to play with these things and they want to use them um i think you'll have that'll be more wholesale wholesale across the force as you get more trust built up
0: um we've got about uh less than a minute left uh and i left the best question for last talent management are you do you have access to the talent you need is the nation growing the talent you need because there is this concern that there are a lot of you know, some of the best yeah. students in the United States are foreign students that take that education with them and go home. And the American students are not as good. And I don't mean that critically, no, but no. that has national security implications. Do you have the right talent in the right places? How? What do we need to be doing differently to grow that talent to make sure that you maintain that cutting edge?
1: So, one of the uh, one of the other positions I have, I'm the I'm the Naval STEM executive, and I would tell you I am concerned about STEM talent in this country. I I think the uh, the fact that we have um, we don't have enough U.S. citizens that are coming out of the STEM pipeline, and as a result, of that I, we're going to have trouble finding the people that I can actually give clearances to to do the critical jobs. So I think STEM is a national security issue, national security challenge. I am trying to really put a lot of energy and focus on the STEM program that, that I lead across the Navy, uh, and we're doing that with a lot of COVID. One of the one of the one of the few good things that came out of COVID is it's shown us that virtual means we can actually scale and reach thousands of kids, vice just hundreds. So we're utilizing this medium to actually reach out to to, uh, kids. And we're also using it to try to reach into communities we traditionally have not reached into. Minorities or females, trying to get them excited about STEM opportunities. So STEM is a huge challenge. There's actually a report that came out uh, last month by the Center for Security and Emerging Technology that's titled China is Fast Outpacing US STEM PhD Growth. And that's, that's, that's a fact. I mean, uh, they're pumping out PhD right. STEM students now and their STEM institutions in China are getting better. So that's a concern. So we have got to double down on STEM in this country and it's gotta be K through PhD. You gotta start early and you gotta, you gotta pull them across. I think there's a value of debt for STEM and I think it's middle school. And uh, I think a lot of the kids uh, who probably should be STEM kids get out, you know, get off the track as it were somewhere in middle school, because, you know, they get a lot of other distractions in middle school. But a lot of it is because especially for minorities and women, they don't see people that look like them that are in STEM fields. Um, and that's a problem. So we've got to find ways to fix that. And so that is a tremendous or it's a huge focus area for me. It's also a very exciting area because everybody gets excited about STEM. A lot of people are trying to help me. We, we're putting together a team uh, that's really trying to amp this up across the DON. It's pretty
0: exciting. Admiral Selby, thanks so much for being so generous with your time. Absolutely terrific having you on the program. Fairwinds following season. Look forward uh, to having you on again as one of our regular guests. Thanks so very much.
1: Thank you, Bagu. It's great to be with you.
0: Um, Okay, that was terrific. Um,